0: Alright, let's get into something more important. This is my first sermon as a, as a world champion Seattle Seahawks fan. Yeah. I've been saying that about everything. Like last Monday, I was like, this is my first breakfast. With the Seattle Seahawks, you know. <laughs> Seattle Seahawks are Super Bowl champions. Um, if I say the words, Seattle Seahawks, what comes to your mind? Twelfth man. Beast mode. Anything else? Skittles? Yeah. Hard work and focus, love it. Okay. Anything else? Any other football? All right. Okay. Good job, Deb. That's I know that's growth for you. That's growth. Yeah. My kids have uh, they're eight, five, and um, a year and a half. Um, My kids only know the Seattle Seahawks as exciting, competitive, as a team that have won multiple NFC West championships as a team that have gone to the Super Bowl twice in just under a decade and have won at once. That's all they know. And that narrative of the Seattle Seahawks is very different than my narrative of the Seattle Seahawks. I am just a little bit older than the whole Seattle Seahawks franchise. I grew up in an era when the best we could hope for was a few bright spots in between Dave Craig fumbles and Brian Bosworth photo shoots, at, you know, just sub-500 season after season after season. Before this year, the name Seattle Seahawks brought with it the baggage of disappointment and underachievement But now, with this system, from the general manager John Schneider to Coach Pete Carroll, this extremely hungry, talented team, captained by Russell Wilson, the Seahawks, that name carries with it a different weight altogether. It's not that history is completely erased. It's that history has been culminated in the Seahawks this year. Those prophetic bright spots of the past, those wonderful Steve Largent catches and Kurt Warner runs and Cortez, Kennedy, Sacks and Chuck Knox, Smash Mouth style and Sean Alexander touchdowns behind Walter Jones and Steve Hutchinson, those bright spots in eras of darkness have all culminated to become something that's greater than the sum of their parts, a Super Bowl championship. If you don't know anything about football, i probably lost you. So, let me just cut to the point. The Bible is a huge narrative. It is, from cover to cover, the story of God. It's God's real life interaction with humanity over the years. If you were to look at humanity and our history in God's story or our history in any true story throughout our existence, you would have to admit that most of humanity is a few bright spots in a lot of dark times. You would see a few significant achievements and great people among a lot of disappointment, failure, and struggle. The Bible is not given to us so that we can find out... Let me restate that. The Bible is not primarily given to us so that we can find out how we're supposed to act or because of the great examples of how to be a human that it provides. The Bible is God's revelation about who He is and about how we are invited to respond to who He is. The culmination of the Bible all of those stories is fulfilled in Jesus Jesus is the Seattle Seahawks Super Bowl championship of the Bible amen all right all those bright spots throughout the ages all of those whom God used like Abraham and Sarah and Moses and Ruth and David and Abigail and Elijah and Elisha Elizabeth and Zachariah Mary and Joseph John the Baptist they all pointed to Jesus Now you're about ready to listen to a sermon a proclamation of good news of Jesus hearing a sermon is a passive act you could be looking at your smartphone and hear me I want to challenge you to listen participate by asking yourself and wrestling with with the text, what are the implications of these words of the story that I am hearing? Ask yourself, why is Matthew telling us this particular story? Why is he putting it here in his gospel? What does this passage tell me about God? What does this story tell me about who Jesus is and what Jesus is about and why Jesus matters to the world and why Jesus matters to my world. Does this text ask anything of me? Does it encourage me to have a change of attitude or a change of behavior? Okay, so there's enough stuff you can participate with. One more act of participation. Would you stand with me, please, as we read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. Now, when Jesus had heard about John... He withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate and the hour is already late. So send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You, yourselves, give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only here five loaves and two fish. He said, Bring them to me. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed. He blessed God. And breaking the loaves... He gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. There were about 5,000 men who ate besides the women and children. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open up your word to us. Open up our minds and our hearts to receive the message that you have for us. We thank you that your word is living and active. And though this story may be familiar, I pray that it would have its desired effect today. Amen. You may be seated. The story of the feeding of the 5,000 is one of the most popular in all the Bible. It is in nearly every children's Bible I've ever seen, which you know, those usually pare down all the stories. so it's, it makes the cut of the children's Bible. It's a Sunday school favorite to teach. It's also the only miracle story in of Jesus that is in all four of the Gospels. That tells me it was important enough for four different gospel writers writing to four different audiences to include it in all four of their gospel accounts. What is it about the story? My hunch as to why this story is so popular amongst early Christians is that it so powerfully portrays who Jesus is. Now what I want to ask you to do is give me a few minutes of just plain teaching before I'm going to start preaching. Alright? Because there's a little bit of background here. We just need to, we need to get through that would have been kind of obvious to first century people. So first... Let's remember that Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, wrote this gospel account of Jesus to communicate the good news of Jesus. And he was communicating that good news of Jesus to his fellow Jewish countrymen in first century Palestine. Okay, that's kind of our setting. And throughout the whole book of Matthew, he's trying to show how Jesus fulfills this national longing for a rescuer to come rescue Israel. So in 1st century Palestine, there's a collection of different ideas drawn from Scripture as to what this rescuer was going to be like and look like, and the kinds of ways you would know if he was even there. So one example would be the, the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18, 15. This is Moses speaking. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. So... As the people in Israel in the first century were in exile under Roman rule, they were waiting for a prophet like Moses to step up and lead them. And as we've been working through Matthew over the past year or so, I've been pointing out different ways that Jesus is acting kind of like Moses but better like Moses takes the people out into the wilderness and they disobey God and grumble and none of that generation gets into the promised land it's the next generation right well, what happens as soon as Jesus is baptized he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and there he resists temptation he remains obedient to God he does what Moses and the Israelites could not do ready for a tongue twister I don't know why I wrote it this way one of the most memorable moments in Moses' ministry was how he, leading thousands of Israelites in the wilderness, prayed to God for all these starving people, and God rained manna and quail from heaven to feed them. And this is one of the stories of Moses, one of the most, most famous Now fast forward to Jesus. The crowds have already wondered a time or two, could this really be the prophet, the one, the one like Moses? And there in the midst of over 5,000 people, Jesus feeds every single person with leftovers so that there's 12 baskets left over after they're all fed and full. 12 baskets. Maybe for the 12 tribes of Israel. The question Matthew wants us as his listeners to wrestle with is, Who is Jesus? Could this be the one we're waiting for? So the people expected a prophet like Moses and they also, also had their sights, their hopes, their longings set on, on a Messiah. Someone, uh, and, and some of the helpful evidence we have of what this longing looked like comes from some of the books we call extra-canonical. And so these are books that were written by uh, early Jewish people and early Christian people that didn't make it into what we call the Bible, in the, the Protestant Bible, and it didn't make it into the Jewish Bible either. One of these books is Second Baruch. You've heard of Second Baruch. It's a Syriac text. It's from the first century AD. And actually it was written by Orthodox Jewish people who were trying to write an apologetic against Christianity. And actually what it does is support some of the claims of Christianity because one of the things that they uh, write in the second Baruch book is that the general longing, the sense of, some, of, of what people were looking for in a Messiah was someone who, like Moses, would feed the multitudes bread. Isn't that interesting? What does it mean then that Jesus fed the masses with five loaves and two fish? Could this be the one. So we have an expectation of a prophet like Moses and a Messiah who ushers in the new age with a miraculous feeding. And third, of course, and most obvious in Matthew's gospel, is the longing and the waiting for a king who would rule from the line of David. From the very first chapter, Matthew goes to great lengths to show that Jesus' his lineage is connected to David. But one of the interesting things about the Davidic promises is that it, he, it, God promised to send a shepherd from the line of David who would shepherd the flock and feed the people. In chapter 9, we've already seen Jesus feel compassion for the people because they are harassed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd in John's Gospel Jesus clearly says I am the Good Shepherd and in Psalm 72 among others a king from David's line is expected to feed the people in fact in John's version of the story after Jesus feeds the 5000 the people immediately try and make him king they're starting to recognize that's what the Davidic King is supposed to do supposed to feed the people so here's Jesus in the wilderness like moses with a crowd of thousands following him and he's able to feed them all to fullness with 12 baskets left over by multiplying 2 or 5 loaves and 2 fish in this one act of power jesus is fulfilling the expectations for a prophet like moses a messiah and the ideal davidic king is it any wonder that this story makes it in all four gospels could he be the one All right. Well, there's something more that I want to point out about these stories. And this is where I want to transition from just teaching you some of the background to actually preaching good news. Jesus is doing more than just fulfilling these expectations, he is exceeding them. all of Israel's history is culminating in Jesus at this point. So to tie in for my introduction earlier, if Moses is like Steve Largent, and Elisha like Cortez Kennedy, and David like Walter Jones, and these messianic expectations are like Sean Alexander, and the other bright spots during dark times, Jesus is the Super Bowl champion Seahawks. He is everything coming together. Moses was in that wilderness, and when the people were grumbling and hungry, what did he do? He prayed to the Father that the Father would do something, and then the Father says, okay, I'm going to provide food, I'm going to provide manna. Moses doesn't provide the food. God provides the food. And yet here Jesus does not ask the Father for help in providing this food. He takes what little is given, and He blesses the Father, thanking Him for the gift. He breaks it, He gives it, and it's more than enough. Prophets don't multiply food and make more food without the help of God. Messiahs don't do that. Davidic kings don't do that. Who is it in all of biblical history that can take the molecules of bread and fish and multiply them into more? Who is it in all the Bible that can take nothing and make it more? Who is it that created the universe out of nothing? God, Yahweh Himself. That's the only person in Scripture who does those things in His own power. And now, we're getting somewhere. Thanks for sticking with me through all the parts of the story that first century hearers would have just gotten. Okay? Because that's the background. That's how awesome the story is. That's why it's in all four Gospels. That's why it's so powerful, why the people in John's Gospel, why they wanted to make Him king instantly. Only God does things like this. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father, you've seen God himself. So let's learn from this passage, what kind of king is this God? What kind of God is Yahweh? You know, I almost titled this message, A Tale of Two Kings. In the beginning of chapter 14, which James preached on last week, we have the story of one king, King Herod, literally, at this time, the king of the Jews. As James shared with us, Herod was hungry for power. He was a fearful and violent man. And I wonder if in today's world with modern psychology, he wouldn't be pegged as a sociopath. If he so much as perceived a threat to his reign, he would kill. And not even think twice. He killed wives. He killed some of his own sons because he was afraid. He had not even real threats to his throne. He just heard whispers and rumors that they might be conspiring. Done. Herod threw a banquet for the elite and the powerful. They were submitted to him and his rule. And at this party there was gluttony and drunkenness and judging by the type of dance that pleased the king. uh, Some type of major sensuality. Herod the king of the Jews had a party where few were invited, where God was dishonored, and where the greatest prophet, John the Baptizer, was violently executed. In our story, Jesus also throws a banquet, has a party. No one's excluded from his blessing. He's a man dishonored in his own hometown, but performs deeds that prove he's the the true king of the Jews and the true king of the whole creation. Herod's party ended in death, while Jesus' party ends in life. And that's the kind of king that Jesus is. That's what kind of father we have. But don't lose facts that Jesus is not just God with a skin suit on. Jesus is actually the enfleshed God. He actually became human. And when Jesus had just heard that his blood relative, his first cousin, who was only six months older than him, John, had been violently executed unjustly at the hands of King Herod, How do you think he felt? Put yourself in Jesus' sandals for a minute. What's going on through your very human emotions? I think he's mourning. We know that Jesus wept over the death of his friend Lazarus. How much more for his first cousin John? So Jesus does what a lot of people might do. He pulls away a little bit, takes a little sabbatical from his ministry, uh, gets in a boat and goes to a secluded place by himself. And there he is when he sees this crowd. Thousands of people coming his way. And I wonder what my reaction might be to that. What would your reaction be? Hide? Angry? Frustrated? Feel just completely burnt out? Uh, Maybe you'd want to use your Jesus powers to like cloaking device on. They can't see me or... (laughs) Blind them so that they go a different way or something. There's all kinds of things that Jesus could have done. Ways he could have reacted. This is how he did react. He saw a large crowd. And felt compassion for them. And healed their sick. Jesus had compassion. Esplogniste. Literally the Greek root that means viscera. Or Entrails. The meaning is that Jesus felt for these people deeply. Compassion is the quality that enables one to feel pain deeply on behalf of another person. And it leads to action in one of two ways. At a minimal, it leads to empathy for another person. Optimally, it leads to an action that alleviates the pain of the other. Our English word compassion is made up of two roots. Come, which means with. Passion, which means suffering. With suffering. The compassionate God is the one who suffers with, who feels deeply our pain and the pain of the world. Cares deeply. Jesus is compassionate. The Father is then compassionate. Don't don't just hear my words there. Listen. Listen. Listen, Jesus is compassionate. That means God, the Father, is compassionate. The one who is about to perform this mighty deed of multiplying food for 5,000 people plus is about to do a compassionately powerful thing. So, so far we've learned that Matthew put this story here to show us one, Jesus is the fulfillment of expectations, prophet, Messiah, Davidic king. Two, Jesus is more than any one of these expectations. He is Yahweh among us. Three, Jesus is compassionate. And not just when His life is going well, but even when in mourning and distress, His true character includes compassion. What else do we learn? We learn that Jesus works through people it's no surprise that Jesus here includes his disciples in the feeding of this multitude after all we've already seen Jesus train up his disciples and send them out on mission he trains them, he equips them he empowers them to do things like cast out demons and heal sick people and occasionally raise people from the dead it's amazing stuff if Jesus were not into relationships He could have been a hermit and stoically gone to the cross to die for our sin. I mean, he could have just done that without training up any disciples, without talking to anyone. He could have not waited 30 whatever years for him to do that. He could have just done it right away. Right? But Jesus doesn't do that. He loves. He deeply wants to gather people to himself. He wants to express his love he wants to gather a new people. He wants to gather disciples. He wants to gather the church, big sea of which we're part of a, a small expression of that. Think of it this way: there are way more efficient ways that Jesus could have fed this multitude, isn't there? Couldn't he have said, um, "Okay, I'm going to wave my hands and they won't feel hunger anymore"? Right? So, so my teacher, they, he could have done that. He could have um, said, okay, everyone sit down. Crisscross applesauce. I do have small children. And uh, put your hands out and close your eyes. Okay, open them. And there could have been like tons of food right there in their hands. He could have said, uh, check your neighbor's coat pocket. And, you know, they're... Pla- he could have said, Nancy, check the seat in front of you underneath where Jeff is sitting there. Oh, and bam, cinnamon swirl bread from Hagen. That's pretty fresh. You can snack on that. So there's all kinds of there's all kinds of ways that Jesus could have met the needs of these people, right? All, and it didn't have to include anybody. It would have probably been more efficient if it didn't include anybody. But instead. He works through people, through regular people, through people of different backgrounds and different occupations and much different personalities. The only thing that Jesus requires is faith. And that's just a fancy religious way of saying trust. And just to give you a picture of how much faith, how much trust uh, this particular situation would have taken, consider this. The scriptures say that there were 5,000 men not including the women and children. So, let's just say conservatively there were six to 7,000 mouths to feed altogether. And consider that without preservatives, most people cooked bread in the morning and consumed it that day. They didn't usually save bread overnight except for the night before the Sabbath when you couldn't work on the Sabbath, right? So, there you go. In the story, these people have no food. The hour is late, meaning that they're not baking bread right now in the towns anyway. It's already past that hour. And besides, they're in the wilderness, not even in a town. And don't forget that this is a massive-sized crowd in those days. You know, we hear of parades of 700,000 Seahawk fans in Seattle. I mean, this is just astronomical. This, that, that amount of people to this people in this day uh, is not even fathomable. Most of us in Bellingham live here because it's kind of slower pace, right? It's, it's a small town, 85,000 people. Um, but in first century Palestine, the average Capernaum, Bethsaida, these little towns at most had 2,000 to 3,000 inhabitants. So what we're talking about here is a crowd that is many towns worth of population, right? So it's not like you could just send them over to one little town and they would even have enough food for a, a crowd this size. It's an overwhelming amount of mouths to feed. Now the disciples are probably hungry and tired and irritable. And the reason I make that assumption is because that's how I get when I'm tired and hungry. And I also make this assumption because they don't even use politeness when they address their Lord. They say... Send these people away so that they may go buy something to eat. Knowing full well that there's probably little available to buy in the first place at this time of day. They're just ticked. They're hungry. They're tired. Like, what is this incompetent Jesus doing out here? And Jesus, the compassionate one, who works through his disciples, says famously, You give them something to eat. And there's something fun in the Greek grammar there. That really impacts the you. It's almost like saying you twice. So it's like you, you yourself give them something to eat. Or you, you literally give them something to eat. Basically here's the meaning. You, not me, give them something to eat. <laughs> right? What kind of statement is that? Because they can't give the people something to eat. They don't have enough. They, li- they don't. They have five loaves and two fish. Mark's Gospel points out that they don't have enough money. And that's kind of the issue in Mark's Gospel. Common Sense points out that even if they had money, it wouldn't have done them much good anyway because there's too many for a a, a couple towns and the towns were done cooking bread for the day. John's Gospel points out that Jesus was trying to test His disciples. And Matthew's Gospel points out that the disciples were aware that they didn't have enough. They immediately say, We've only got five loaves and two fish. And I think that that's the point of Jesus' command. You, yourself, give them something to eat. It is a command that they cannot fulfill without Jesus. This is the story of our lives, by the way. You cannot be sitting here alive without Jesus. I think we tend to think we need Jesus for the big things, the big challenges in life. But what we need to remember is that we need Jesus for everything. It's because He's willing you to be alive right now that you're alive right now. Praise God. This this type of attitude should foster an attitude of thanksgiving. We need Jesus for everything. He is the source of life. We need Him every minute of every day. And sometimes... It takes a wake-up call, an insurmountable issue, to cause this dependence on Jesus. The disciples do not have enough to feed this crowd. They barely had enough to feed themselves. And actually, we learn in John's Gospel that a kid has this food. So it's not even the disciples' food. They'd be kind of jerks to eat it themselves anyway, right? So they don't have enough, but with Jesus, they have more than enough. Julia Creech. I'm going to pick on you just a little bit. Julia Creech. Didn't think she had enough either. I remember meeting Julia and her family at Bellingham Covenant Church several years ago. They stood out to me because they usually brought their beautiful golden retriever uh, assistant dog with them to worship. They were training uh, this wonderful dog to minister to children with special needs. Julia is a physical therapist assistant. She works with children with special needs and a few years ago began to notice the huge need in our community, our county for a special clinic that under one roof could meet physical, occupational and speech therapy needs for all children even those low-income. In Julia's field she technically needs to work under the authority of a licensed physical therapist. She has no training in nonprofit management She's a self-described, behind-the-scenes type of person. To put it bluntly, Julia didn't have enough money or training or authority or education or time to pull this off. And yet she did have two things. One is that she had compassion. She felt deeply in her viscera for the needs of these kids in our community. And two, she knew... She knew that Jesus was initiating this desire in her heart. He was saying to Julia, you give them something to eat. And when Julia stepped out in faith and said, Okay, Jesus, I don't have what it takes. I don't have enough. It's going to take a miracle. As soon as she stepped out and made the first um, Meetings, she set up appointments to start talking about this thing. Guess what happened? Miracles began to happen. Jesus began to bring the right people to the table: thinkers and business-minded people, qualified and dedicated therapists, encouragers, and prayers. Jesus has more than enough. Jeff read the scripture earlier from 2 Kings chapter 6, and in that story, the prophet Elisha. And his apprentice are surrounded by the Aramean army. And not just foot soldiers. It says they have cavalry. They have, they're have they on horseback. I mean, this is an insurmountable odds. And yet Elisha's not scared for some reason. And his assistant, his apprentice is like, What if we're surrounded? There's no way we can defeat this. And But Elisha could see the reality. He knew he wasn't alone. He said, Basically, in his own strength, he knew that they couldn't defeat this army. But with God, who had called them, he was able to see that on the hilltops were armies of angels, chariots of fire. He could see God's resource that typically were blinded to. In the world's eyes... These two men were outnumbered, but Elisha prayed that God would open his apprentice's eyes and then he could see the surrounding mountains full of chariots of fire. And I pray that my eyes and that your eyes would be opened to the resource we have in Jesus. I want to qualify that just a minute because we're Americans and we get out ahead of ourselves. This is not an invitation to run off and do whatever you feel like doing and be like, I know Jesus will provide. It's not an invitation to go start whatever ministry you feel like doing and then say, and by the way, Jesus, bless that. I'm already going to do it. That's not what this is about. This is an invitation to trust Jesus. You don't have enough. I don't have enough. But with Jesus, we have more than enough. In John 15, it says that Jesus is the vine. You and I are the branches. Jesus does not say, Church, go bear fruit on your own. Jesus says, abide in me, and then he will do the work of bearing the fruit. It's when we're connected to Jesus relationally that we can hear Him calling. And when He calls us, He calls us into areas that we're inadequate. And then, then we get to put our weight, our trust on His abundant grace. Jesus is more than enough. So I wonder, I wonder what Jesus may be calling you to lately. Maybe some time ago, and you've learned to stuff it and push it away. Because you thought, I, that's crazy, I can't do that. I don't have what it takes. But I don't want to make that sacrifice. What has Jesus laid on your heart that maybe you've said, no, that's impossible? The good news of this message is Jesus is more than enough for you. I also want to present this possibility. That maybe Jesus isn't calling you to anything new right now. In fact, he's already called every one of us to do some pretty incredible things like love God and our neighbors as ourselves. right? That's some amazing things. He's called us to reflect his goodness and his compassion and his love and his purity and his truth in the places where we work, in the places we call home, amongst our family members and our friends and in our civic responsibilities that is a big calling are you abiding in him in those regular areas of life those things we call regular are you abiding in him or are you trying to take your meager five loaves and two fish and spread it and feed way too many mouths. Because if you are in the workplace, if you are a friend, if you're part of this church, if you are a parent or a grandparent or a surrogate parent, I know you don't have the resource to do what you need to do in Christ. I don't. The message here are we abiding in Him. Maybe. Maybe the big takeaway from this isn't the big thing that he's calling to you to, but maybe it's, it's an invitation to reconnect, to abide in the vine. Let me ask you this question. How are you abiding in Christ lately? Think about that. Let's go to Him, Um, the compassionate King who died for the sin of the world, who died for you and me, that we might have abundant life. Let's go to Him in prayer. Oh, Jesus, uh, (laughs) we live in a very rational place. We live in a rational world of figures, dollars and cents of accounts that either match up and make sense or don't. Lord, we confess that we so often feel like we don't have enough, that we are inadequate. And that either takes us out of the game or we try and fool ourselves into thinking we're something we're not. Lord, I know that both of those avenues lead to stagnant existence that lead to death. And I'm thankful that through this passage you've reminded us that you invite us to the middle way, to life. You invite us not to, to think we're something more than we are. And not to give up in the face of insurmountable odds, but to put our faith in You, the One who is more than enough. Lord, I pray that You would take our five loaves and two fish of life, of experience, of intellect, of finances, or lack thereof, whatever it is, God, that You would show us how what faith in our circumstance looks like. Holy Spirit, I pray for grace that You would draw us willingly, lovingly, that we would look forward to uh, to abiding in you through, through prayer, through scripture, through f- uh, consistent fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Hmm. And I'm thankful that this is all good news of your kingdom, Lord. That you're not presenting this message angry. You're not condemning. You are inviting us to experience abundant life will you help us to reach out and take it? Amen.